Hello, and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The fossil fuel industry in the U.S. benefits from $4 billion a year in government subsidies, most in the form of tax breaks. The industry argues that these subsidies are needed to promote the development of domestic energy and to support oil and gas jobs. However, over the past decade, opposition to subsidies has intensified. Opponents say there's little justification for subsidizing fossil energy when government's focus should be on clean energy and climate. And politicians from both sides of the aisle argue that the government could simply better use the money spent on subsidies elsewhere. Here to discuss the latest in the decades-old debate around energy subsidies and to explain their true impact is today's guest, Gilbert Metcalf. Gilbert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Gilbert is a professor of economics at Tufts University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He is a visiting scholar at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and at the Climate Center for Energy Policy. He formerly served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment and Energy at the U.S. Department of Treasury. His research focus is applied public finance with particular interests in taxation, energy, and environmental economics. So, Gilbert, just to get started, um, oil and gas subsidies are frequently discussed, uh, more frequently these days. Uh, but just how much do they actually cost government? How much should we be concerned about them? So there are dozens and dozens of subsidies in the tax code for oil and gas, but there are three big ones that together account for about $4 billion a year in lost federal revenue. And that's the expensing of intangible drilling costs, percentage depletion, and the domestic manufacturing deduction that oil and gas production gets. Those are the big three, about $4 billion a year. Now, these go back a century in some case. What's a bit of the history? Why were they implemented? What was their purpose? So two of them go back, the big ones, uh, intangible drilling costs and percentage depletion, go back really to the beginning of the federal tax code back in the early part of the 20th century. And part of the reason for putting them in the tax code was to help the then uh, uh, infant industry, if you will, oil and gas industry, get established in the United States. Uh, Automobiles were beginning to be produced, uh, mass production, and the view was we really needed to support this industry. So they go back a long way. The domestic manufacturing deduction is, is a more recent innovation in the tax code, and that was put in place to support all kinds of domestic manufacturing, not just oil and gas. And it was put in place in a a federal law called the American Jobs Act. And that pretty much tells you why this uh, provision was put into the tax code. So so you said that these are three basic different forms of essentially tax incentives that we're talking about. Is that right? That's right. And and they're, they're incentives. Why we call them subsidies is because they're particular to these industries. Not everyone gets to take advantage of them. And so because it is a departure from what tax economists like to refer to as a sort of a normalized or standard tax code, when you get these kinds of uh, preferential treatment that not everyone gets to take advantage of, then that's when, we, that's when we start talking about subsidies or tax loopholes. So $4 billion a year, these have been around for quite some time. There has been talk over time kind of ebbing and flowing about eliminating these. But why is this discussion intensified now? What is the view, I guess, at the federal level surrounding these subsidies? So let me give you 
slightly longer answer to the question. It goes back to the beginning of the Obama administration. There was a meeting of the G20, the G20 are the finance ministers and and leaders of of the biggest countries uh, in the world, developed countries in the world. And the G20, developed and developing, China's part of this, the the, the G20 uh, agreed that we should eliminate fossil fuel subsidies as part of a global strategy to address greenhouse gas emissions. So that's the beginning of the modern efforts to get rid of these tax preferences. Now, even more recently, you see uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan's tax plan, a better plan or better way to improve the tax system, to bring down tax rates, particularly to bring the corporate income tax rate down to 20 percent from its uh, current level in the mid-30s. How do you do that? Well, you, you have to do that uh, by getting rid of a lot of loopholes in the tax code. We need to broaden the base of the tax code in order to bring down rates without hemorrhaging revenue in the, in the federal tax system. So one of the, one of the uh, proposals as part of the Republican tax plan is to get rid of a lot of loopholes, a lot of tax preferences, including these for oil and gas. To what extent – have these subsidies been critical to the oil and gas industry, and how have they influenced our use of fossil fuels? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the tax code, they clearly were very helpful to the establishment of the oil and gas industry. Today, when I talk to oil and gas executives, uh, and I spent a lot of time down in Houston talking to executives as I was doing the research for this for this project, you hear... Uh, a lot about the value of the expensing of intangible drilling costs. It's a big moneymaker for them. It really helps them with their cash flow. And it was even more valuable and important to them in an era where uh, oil and gas drillers, the the exploration and production companies, the E&Ps, they could not go to uh, the market and borrow money for these projects. They had to finance it internally through cash flow. Now, that's changed a little bit. One of the remarkable developments in the shale oil and gas revolution, the fracking revolution, has been that debt markets have opened up to lend money to oil and gas production, particularly with subprime lending. And it's an innovation that that has made cash flow a little bit less important than it was in the old days uh, when, when you really needed it in order to finance your next project. So financing is more widely available to the industry than it was in the past, yet these subsidies continue. If these subsidies were to be taken away tomorrow, what would the impact be in terms of exploration and development anywhere along actually the oil value chain? And that was precisely the question I wanted to answer doing this study because if you look at the industry studies – they, the American Petroleum Institute commissioned a study, and, and, it, and it was a doom and gloom kind of scenario if we're going to lose you know, 20 to 30 percent of domestic production, according to their estimates. It was a kind of a, a, a cataclysmic kind of view. But the problem was those studies didn't really explain how they did their analysis. So you couldn't really kick the tires on the analysis. So I really wanted to do an analysis that was transparent that the industry could understand that would get at this question. And what I found was if you get rid of these big three deductions, uh, we, we'd, get, we'd get a reduction in drilling on the order of about 8 to 10 percent uh, reduced drilling activity in the United States. In the long run, 
over time, over a period of about eight to 10 years, we would get a reduction in oil, domestic oil and gas production on the order of 5%. It's not, not, uh, it's not the end of the industry by far, uh, by any means, if, if we were to get rid of these. What would be the impact on, on uh, jobs? Again, it would, be, it would be a pretty modest impact on the order of 4 to 5% reduction in jobs in the drilling industry, uh, less of an impact in refining or in the transportation sector. Uh, biggest impact would be in drilling. So it's interesting. So you're saying there's not going to be that big of an impact if these were taken away from the industry. Obviously, from the government's perspective, this is money that could potentially be spent on, on other purposes. Why do these, these subsidies persist? Well, I think a couple of reasons. One is that policymakers have not had a good appreciation for what the impacts would be of eliminating these subsidies. They have the industry studies that suggest that it would be quite bad for domestic production. We'd lose a lot of jobs. You you always hear the notion of energy security and energy independence being invoked. That flag is is waved quite madly when when these kinds of uh, policy changes are being discussed. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I did this analysis is to try to bring um, a little bit more of a dispassionate or um, interest-free point of view, if you will. To, uh, I don't have a stake in this game. I'm an academic. I'm curious in getting to, to the truth and understanding what's going on. I don't work for industry. So uh, I, I think having better – better uh, analysis will help policymakers. The second second barrier, if you will, is that $4 billion is helpful for the federal budget, but it's not going to go, as we spread it around amongst different programs, the benefits of reducing this are kind of diffuse, and maybe it's 25 cents in my pocket and 25 cents in your pocket, but the $4 billion hit to industry is very real to the oil and gas industry. So they're going to fight very hard to keep these uh, tax preferences. And they're going to continue to put out studies that are saying, uh, you know, predicting doom and gloom. And so it's always hard to overcome the kind of inertia of, of policies in place that, that disproportionately benefit a few, where the impact being sort of spread around amongst millions of people. And that's where I think the current situation lend some hope that we can actually reform these policies. There's a great interest in tax reform. Trump wants to reduce tax rates. He wants to finance lots of infrastructure spending, and he doesn't have a plan for how to pay for that yet. So $4 billion can go, uh, can help a lot in that regard. So I think we're going to have to look at these deductions as well as a number of other deductions if we're going to actually do some of these uh, spending initiatives at the federal level without uh, without breaking the bank of, of the federal deficit. So what is the actual impact on consumers of these subsidies? What's the bill that consumers are paying? So that's a great question. And that's a really an important question because one of the things you hear from industry is that we're going to drive up the price of gasoline at the pump if we get rid of these subsidies. Well, the the reality is if you get rid of these subsidies, it drives up the price of a barrel of oil by about 40 to 50 cents a barrel. That's just noise. We're talking 
we were talking an increase in the price of gasoline of maybe two cents. Markets weigh much more than that. Markets weigh way more than that just uh, with, with, a, with a, uh, a spate of bad weather. So the impact on consumers is really uh, quite trivial. If we look at these subsidies, uh, you know, do they preferentially treat oil and gas versus – particularly, for example, in the electric, electricity generation uh, sector – do they you know, give an advantage to, to natural gas in those markets, in distort markets? So they do. Mm-hmm. And, and oil and gas, natural gas is the relevant one since very little oil is used in electricity production. Uh, but natural gas, certainly it's a big it, – it's, uh, it's very big for electricity. But the calculations I do suggest that we're looking at a price impact – on the order of about 8% for natural gas. In other words, if we get rid of these subsidies, we would see that the, the price of natural gas would go up by about 8%. So it would, it's creating a bit of a distortion between, between uh, say, wind and solar on the one hand and natural gas on the other. But it's, it's probably not a, a, not a major distortion. Uh, your research indicates that there's little impact of subsidies on climate um, can you talk about that? So I want to distinguish between the direct and indirect impacts. So mm-hmm. the direct impacts are, are, are definitely very small. First off, we would see a very modest reduction in domestic oil production. Let's just focus on oil for a moment. A similar story for natural gas. Um, 4% reduction. So we get a pretty modest decline in, in oil-related emissions. But keep in mind that about half of that is going to be made up uh, – the, the lost domestic production gets, gets – uh, leads to an increase in some foreign production. Uh, so the overall reduction in, in oil uh, consumption is, is smaller, about half of, of, of the domestic uh, cuts. So there is uh, some decrease in U.S. emissions and a, and a slight increase in foreign emissions. So it's a very, very modest impact. Uh, on, on emissions. Now, that's the direct impact. I think the indirect impact is, is, is significant. And here's, here's what I have in mind. The U.S. is the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases after China. And we, we along with China, are, are leading uh, players in the international climate negotiations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions internationally. If the U.S. were to eliminate these subsidies for domestic oil and gas production, it would have a huge impact politically in the climate negotiations and on other countries that have much, much larger oil and gas uh, subsidies, Indonesia, Brazil, countries in Africa. If the U.S. were to move to reduce these uh, subsidies, it would it would undercut one of the arguments in those countries not to take action because they say, well, the U.S. isn't doing it. Why should we do it? So I think politically, it's a huge deal. And that's even truer now in the Trump administration because Trump has clearly walked back from the clean power plan. It's clear that the if the Trump administration stays in the Paris Agreement, they are going to play a backseat role at best. China, the ceding leadership to China and the European Union. But if 
as part of tax reform, these uh, subsidies were eliminated, it would help to rebuild a bit of uh, credibility for the United States in these international negotiations so, there, so that we are not entirely marginalized going forward. Um, what's the handicap on those subsidies being eliminated? You know, if uh, the handicap is, I'm not a betting man, so I never quite know how to phrase those, but I would not bet a lot of money on these things getting eliminated, put it that way. But I will say this, while the odds on their being eliminated may not have gone up after the election, the uncertainty has gone up considerably. We just don't know what Trump is going to do in terms of the various promises he made during the election. He wants to build a wall. He wants to build infrastructure. He wants to cut taxes. He doesn't want to blow up the deficit. Well, you can't square those things unless you come up with some revenue somewhere. Now, let me go way off in left field and say he could get $100 billion a year with a carbon tax. And if we went down that route, you would see a lot of pressure to get rid of any kinds of subsidies for clean energy. And while we're at it, we could get rid of the subsidies for for fossil fuels as well as part of a grand bargain. Uh, Talking about clean energy development for just a moment, um, has, from your research, the the subsidies that have gone to the fossil fuel industry, have those negatively impacted the development or the market for clean energy technologies? I think it has had, at best, a marginal impact. I think the fracking revolution has had a much bigger impact because with hydraulic fracking and and the advances in horizontal drilling and seismic imaging, meaning we are getting a lot of natural gas now that we weren't getting before, natural gas, the, the, the low price of natural gas is really um, – sort of cutting wind and solar off at the knees in terms of, of, of their contribution for electricity generation. It's tough. It's tough to do wind and solar with the, with the current price of natural gas. And if we got rid of the subsidies for uh, the production and investment tax credits for wind and solar, it would, it would just uh, freeze up uh, those industries entirely, I think. Mm-hmm. So what's your final word on these subsidies? Should they remain? Should they go? Well, the subsidies for fossil fuels should definitely go. They played no constructive role in the tax code. It's just free money for the oil and gas industry. It's money we could spend elsewhere uh, to greater effect, and it would increase our standing in the world as we're trying to persuade other countries to take uh, uh, better positions in terms of their tax codes and getting rid of subsidies. There's just no reason to keep them any longer. We've been talking with Gilbert Metcalf, professor of economics at Tufts University and visiting scholar at the Climate Center. Gilbert, thanks for talking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Energy Policy Now podcast. You can get the latest energy and environment updates from our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Keep up to date on the latest news, research, and events from the Climate Center by visiting our website, www.climateenergy.upenn.edu. Have a great day. Thank you.